Amen. Great. Well, good to see you this morning. And don't feel too sorry for me. After all, my team did beat his team just two weeks ago. So, you know, it's not that bad after all, really, is it? Hey, uh, we're continuing our thoughts this morning on, on family and, and, and the fact that family matters and how to make relationships work. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about two myths, two relationship myths that drive so much of our thinking when it comes to relationships in our Western culture. And if you remember what they are, the first one was the right person myth. And the thought behind that is, when I meet the right person, when I, re- when I meet Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, everything about me is going to be right. You know, I don't have to worry about me. I've just got to find that person out there who's going to make my life cool, going to make me feel really good about myself. That was the first myth uh, that so many people out in our society today are looking for uh, the right person and not worrying about becoming the right person. The other myth was um, that a promise and a party cancels the past. A promise and a party cancels the past. You know what I mean by that, don't you? Like a vow. I can do anything I like with anybody I like, and then one day I'll meet Mr. or Mrs. Right. They'll make everything right. We'll come and we'll make a vow. We'll have a big party, and we'll live happily ever after. And how many know that's a load of nonsense? Exactly. <laughs> Why? Because let me tell you something about marriage. Marriage doesn't make you capable it makes you accountable. Marriage doesn't make you capable. It makes you accountable. How many know that when you are accountable and not capable, you are inevitably miserable? (laughs) Do I need to say that again? When you are are, uh, accountable and not capable, it's only a matter of time till you are miserable. And it just doesn't apply in marriage. It applies in every echelon of life. Uh, if you, you know, borrow money and you're not capable of repaying it, it's only a matter of time that you're miserable. If you, if you take on a role that you're not capable of fulfilling, it's only a matter of time to you're miserable. Whenever you're accountable and not capable, it's just a matter of time till you are miserable. And Jesus came along, and we looked at this the other week, Jesus came along and he said, forget about the Ten Commandments, right? I'm giving you one, one commandment. You focus on this one and you'll get all the others in one go. You'll kill 10 birds with one stone. He said, this is the new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Not as culture defines love, not as you think love should be, that you love one another, not necessarily as you have been loved, or even now, he's taking it up a, a notch, as you want to be loved. You love others as I have loved you. And, uh, and then he said, that's, that's the deal. That's what I want you to do. And funnily enough, Jesus never asked us to pray to him. Now, we should pray to God, obviously, but he never asked us to pray to him. He never asks us, to, um, to promise to him. Oh, Jesus, I promise, I promise, Lord, if you do this, I'll do that. He certainly never asks us to negotiate with him. He asks us to follow him, right? And here's the thing. You want to get this. 
prayer is no substitute for follow. A lot of people pray in the hope they'll get some outcome. And they think if I can pray this, then God might give me that. Despite the fact that I'm not following him, I substitute follow with pray. Jesus never asked us to pray. Now we need to pray. But he never asked us to pray. He asked us to follow. Then the Apostle Paul comes and he writes all these New Testament letters. And really, uh, Paul never gives us a to-do list. Paul never really adds to the one commandment that Jesus gave us. What Paul actually does is tease it out. What Paul does is apply it. You see, if you look at all of his letters, all the things that Paul wrote to these Christians over here and to this church over there, he's constantly uh, reiterating the fact that uh, do this as Christ. Do this in Christ. He brings everything back to this final command that Jesus gave us to love one another as we, as he had loved us. Paul doesn't bring us a to-do list. He gives us some fine print. And it's not the fine print that kind of, you know, is synonymous with contractual fine print, you know, gotcha. But it's the fine print that will make you fine. And here's the thing. Uh, if you're in a home and you're living at home with people, uh, if you're not married and you're living at home with people, you're in this incredible environment. You're in the love gym, right? You're, you're in a place where you learn how to love. Because one day you'll be in a relationship with someone and you'll be accountable. And if you haven't prepared, you may not be capable. And then it's only a number of years until you are miserable and you, you know what I'm saying? I can't stand it anymore. And this is what is going on in our society. We've bought into the right person myth. If I just find the right person, I'll be happy, right? We've bought into that I make a promise and have a party and that my past doesn't matter. That's nonsense. We don't live our life in events. Our life is a story. And we are always preparing for uh, tomorrow. And Paul gives us, he teases out this, this, this command, love others as I have loved you, in that most famous of passages in Corinthians 13. We've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. I was here two weeks ago. I was in, uh, where was I last week? In Mackay. We went to Mackay last week and was just part of a church's 20th anniversary there, which was a wonderful time. But the week before, I started off, this is all kind of catch up, because uh, I started off on the fine print from Luke, uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, but I hadn't finished. So I'm going to finish that off this morning. If you were here, again, just by way of catch up, we said love was patient, and we defined patience as adjusting my speed to the speed of another. That's patience. And we, you know, you're driving along the highway and someone's not doing your speed. It's, it's quite annoying. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're living with people who live at different pace to you, different speeds to you, you've got to adjust your speed to them. That's patience. Love is kind. Kind is when I lend my strength to somebody else and don't look for anything in return. That's kindness. Love does not envy, does not boast, does not proud. We define that. And we considered that love is prepared for someone else to be in the spotlight, for someone else to get the credit that I'm due. I'm happy for someone else to get the credit. And it doesn't bother me. That's what it means to be, um, uh, to be paid. To, that's what it means not to envy, not to boast, and not to be proud. That's what it looks like in work clothes. That's how you know that, that you got that kind of covered on the inside. When someone else gets the credit, or when they're talking really highly about someone else, when someone else gets the spotlight and it's not you, then you're okay with that. That's love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not. Envy. Um, 
And then we got to love is self, not self-seeking, and we didn't, get, we didn't finish that, so I'm going to pick that up this morning. Love is not self-seeking. Self-seeking is not a word we use often um, in our culture, but we do use the word selfish, and it's the same idea. Love is not selfish. Now, how many in the room know that selfishness is born into the heart of a child? Let me know that. I mean, when the baby screams to get what it wants, it gives no consideration for the mother's well-being whatsoever. Is that not right? Baby's thinking, well, mum had a rough night last night, so I shouldn't scream too hard. No, the baby screams till it gets what it wants. And of course, it's learning a very valuable lesson as a baby. How do I get what I want in life? Well, I scream until people come running. And so this is the way... We think, and we're all the same. I'm not pointing necessarily to babies. I mean, I grew up incredibly self-centred, selfish, because that was the way I learned how to live. I learned that if I want something, I scream loud enough and eventually I get it. And then you grow up. And how many know that growing up is all about this learning to love? Being in a family is all about learning to love. It's all about learning to kick against selfishness, to go the other direction, to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow your mother. You don't have to follow your father. You don't have to follow your brother or sister. You follow Jesus. How many know this? How many know that the opposite of love isn't hate because God hates and God is love? So if God hates and God is love, the opposite of love is in hate. So you say to him, well, what is the opposite of love? And I say, I'm glad you've asked. The opposite of love is selfishness. Because there is no selfishness in Christ. He's completely and utterly selfless. He hates sin, sure, he hates the devil, no doubt. But he, there is no selfishness in him at all. And when a child, one of the first things a child learns, and if you've had children or you, you've been around children, you know, is mine. The word mine. That's mine. And when you take something they've already deemed as theirs, you know what I mean? You take that, oh my goodness, I agitated. That's mine, mine, mine. And we grasp and, and we have this kind of sense of, of ownership and uh, love is working against that. Love is recognising that selfishness is born into the heart of a child, that you are primarily a selfish being and we have to follow Jesus Christ and deal with that selfishness. What we have to do is put the interests of others above our own. We subordinate our interests to the interests of another. Love is not selfish. This does not come normal. This is not natural, by the way. This isn't natural to me. This isn't natural to you. This isn't natural to the woman or the man of your dreams. I don't care who you're looking at. Selflessness is natural to nobody. But it is the definition of love, uh, as Paul teases out this, this great command of Jesus to love others as he loved us. And his love for us was completely and utterly Selfless. It says here, love is not uh, easily angered. And that word angered there means stirred up. Have you ever been stirred up? Have you ever got to a point where you just want to scream? You know? I just can't stand this anymore. 
I'm just, they're stirring me up. Love doesn't get ticked off easily. Love absorbs. Have you ever seen a sponge absorb, you know, the liquid or you can absorb energy? Sometimes you just got to absorb and keep your mouth shut. Sometimes you just don't react. Um, people uh, of love remember this. They remember that everybody's behavior makes sense to them. Everybody's behavior makes sense to them. And if it doesn't make sense to me, and if it doesn't make sense to you, it's because you're missing information. It's because there's something going on that you aren't kind of um, cued into that you're not familiar with. And so you might indeed ask because everybody's story informs their view of the world. And you can have two people relate to you exactly the same story and they get their facts wrong. Or they get their facts different. And neither of them are being deceptive because your story, your story to this point affects the way you read life. And the way you read life, that's why you do what you do. And the way you do what you do makes 100% sense to you, but makes no sense to some other people. They look at you and they think, man, you're screwed up. <laughs> There's something wrong with you, right? But you're thinking, oh, I'm not screwed up, you're screwed up. I've got it together. <laughs> because my story makes sense to me. You see... You've got to recognise that when you say, well, that person, you know, I've got to tell you, he just pushes my buttons. I mean, you know, she just ticks me off. Well, how many know it's your buttons, right? It's not their buttons. The problem isn't the fact they push your buttons. The problem is your buttons, right? Here's where the myth, this is the myth. If you've ever thought about leaving your spouse, this is the myth, <laughs> Lean in now, you need this. <laughs> See, the myth says, if I was married to the right person, I wouldn't be as angry as I am. Right? Everyone's going real quiet in here. You're a pin drop. <laughs> I'm leveraging the myth that if I found the right person, I would be right. I'd be okay. If I could only marry the right person, and then everything's going to be, I don't need to, I don't need all this nonsense. I don't need to be, uh, because he'd be so dreamy, he won't push my buttons. That's what we think. And when you're married to this poor old slob you're married to, he's pushing your buttons left, right and centre. You think, oh, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to find someone else who doesn't push my buttons like he pushes my buttons. The problem is, they're your buttons. You know, they're, they're, look, <laughs> there is some truth to this kind of misnomer, there is some truth to this, and let me explain it. We're going to go real deep here. The truth's not as you think it is, right? And the, the, you see, this is what we think. We think if I was married to somebody different, then I wouldn't have to deal with the anger that I have to deal with with this person, because this person, you know, they pick their underwear up for crying out loud. You know, like, like they'd be considerate. It wouldn't be so selfish. Not like this slow. I'm, you know, what I'm saying. I got to be carried away. Uh, <laughs> see, we, we, this is what we think. We think. That if I was married to the right person, right, they wouldn't make me angry. And that's true. Nobody makes you angry, in fact. Um, they just reveal the anger that's inside of you. Nobody makes you angry. Uh, if there's anger, then you've got to deal with it, folks. 
Uh, that's the deal. See, love is not easily angered. Uh, nobody makes you angry. What people do is they reveal the anger that's in me. And that's why I think that's why God puts us in families. Because families, we get angry with one another. You know what I'm saying? Angry with your siblings and angry with your parents or whatever it is. And angry with your cousin. So-and-so let you down. And, and what's going on here is all this anger is coming up so that you can deal with it. So that you might mature and learn how to love. Love is so wonderful, isn't it? All right, let's keep going. <laughs> oh, dear. Any, um, are you sure you want love? Let's have a look at this next one here. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, that's so hard, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, on the 28th of August at 2.30 in the afternoon, you did this. <laughs> I remember it well. And uh, love doesn't do that. Love, because here's the thing. The problem with record keepers is that they're good at keeping everybody else's records, but not so well keeping their records of their own. <laughs> and, and here's a question. Here's a question. Um, is, there anything in, is there anything in you that enjoys catching your significant other person doing the wrong thing? Yes, I got them now. Is there anything in you? Because if there is... That's messed up. That's messed up. And that's got to get dealt with. So that's, that's the whole thing. That's what love is. Love says, you know, man, I, I'm not going to keep the record of wrong. And, and if there's that thing inside of you, and, and I know it's not easy, but Jesus never said following me would be easy. Um, he, Jesus, I mean, God's got a cabinet on you, a, a filing cabinet on you a mile long, I hate to tell you. Now, here's the thing. He chooses not to open it. He forgives you and he acts like he forgets. He's cast your iniquities as, you know, as far as the east is from the west, right? God pretends he doesn't remember. Now, of course he does. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Oh, oh my God, you know, God doesn't remember my sin. Yeah, God chooses not to remember your sin because God knows everything, right? But here's the thing. It's not easy but it makes you better at life. Following Jesus makes life, makes life better because it makes you better at life. If you adopt this position, if you say, I'm going to forgive and act like I have forgotten, it's going to make life easy. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy, however. It's a difficult course. Because we love to be exactly right, but you can be exactly right and exactly alone. Now, how many in this room know that when you reach for the handle of the filing cabinet, here it is, when you reach for the handle of the filing cabinet, it's a power play. In actual fact, you are powering up. You're wanting some leverage in this relationship, aren't you? And so the best leverage I can get is to point back to this thing that you did and you were wrong and I'm going to slam dunk you with that. It's a power play. And here's the funny thing. If we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus never got involved in power plays. He never powered up. He never said, well, you'll do as I say because I'm the son of God. Never. He never said, you refer to me with my official title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. 
He never powered up. In fact, he took upon himself no reputation, the form of a servant. Perhaps one of the reasons why he never pulls a filing cabinet drawer out is because he has this commitment to not powering up, to not leveraging his position as God over us. And this is the definition of love. And Jesus said, follow me. If you've ever wondered where we're going, this is it. I want you to love others as I have loved you. Paul teases this out and said, this is what that looks like. It's, the, it's, it's opposite to what comes natural to every human heart. We are not naturally patient. We are not naturally kind. We are not naturally selfless. And Paul goes on here as he continues to write this letter and it's like the end, it's like the finale, there's fireworks, there's things going off everywhere. He says, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. That's not talking about doctrinal truth. What that's referring to there is his when you find your partner doing the right thing, they rejoice. When you find something going right, you rejoice in the right thing. Love uh, always protects. How do you protect the relationship? You protect the relationship by not smuggling things in, smuggling debt in, or smuggling addiction in, or smuggling people in. You know, we smuggle people, we smuggle things into a relationship. That's what destroys relationships. Love always protects. What does that mean? It means that love doesn't smuggle things in to that um, relationship. Love always protects. Love always trusts. What does that mean? Always trust, but you don't know what he's done. How can I trust him? You, you, I mean, once bitten, twice shied, right? I mean, I would be foolish to trust. Love always trusts. What does that look like? Love always looks for the generous explanation of anybody's behavior. The most generous explanation of anybody. You know, here's the thing. You have an expectation of the people you live with and you have an experience. This is your expectation. This is your experience, right? And there's a gap between your expectation and experience. I thought he was going to do that and he did this. I thought she should do that and she's done that. There's a gap. What do I fill the gap with? Two things. You either fill the gap with a generous explanation or suspicion. Your, your decision. You decide. Do I fill the gap with suspicion or a generous explanation? Love chooses a generous explanation love always trusts love always hopes there's always an expectation for a great tomorrow love always believes the best love perseveres he wouldn't have met the right persevere there if there was a sense in which this was natural to anybody but it's not natural folks it's, it's unnatural. It's supernatural. Love keeps moving. Love, recogni um, love recognizes that we're going to hit a point where we can't go on and we don't want to go on and we've had enough. But love perseveres. He wouldn't have had the right perseverance, right, if there was such a thing as Mr. or Mrs. Wright, who was the woman or the man of your dreams or the family of your dreams and everything was going to be honky-dory, everything was going to be uh, you know, unicorns and rainbows. He wouldn't have had the right persevere, but he did because love perseveres. So if you'd look at all of that, what would you give yourself? C? C minus? <laughs> a D? <laughs> Maybe on a good day you get a B? 
Uh, any A students in the class this morning? Anyone give themselves an A? Maybe not. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Some of you, some of you this morning are going, oh, mate, I know that's in the Bible. I know that's what Jesus, I'm not Jesus. That's more than I can bear. That's more than I can do. I, I appreciate that. I honestly do. I appreciate that that's more than you can do. However, however, I'm going to run through, let me run through the list again. And what I want you to do is I want you to um, cross out anything that's in that list that you think is too much to ask of the person you're looking for. Uh, I'm going to run through the list quickly. And what I want you to do is I want you to say, nah, I don't need that one. And we just cross that one off. Okay. So let's have a look at it. And maybe, you know, it's too much for you. I understand that. And look, it's too much for anybody. So let's have a look and let's decide, okay, I'm happy to be married to a person without that. Okay, let's, uh, patience. Who wants to be married to impatient? Anybody? Okay, so with that, does patience stay? What do you think? Who, who, wants, who wants to live with somebody who's patient? Yeah? yeah? So patience is in. Okay, I'm oh, sorry about that. Patience has got to stay. <laughs> kind. No, I'm happy to live with an unkind person. <laughs> who, who, wants, who wants to live with an unkind? No, has kind got to stay? Okay, kind has to stay. All right, all right, all right. Humble. Now, I'm happy to live with a proud, you know, arrogant person who's just all about themselves. That's the person I'm looking for. Who's looking for a proud person? Okay, it stays. All right, all right. Uh, isn't selfish. No, I, I want someone who's completely self-centred. That's what I, I want them, you know, when they're 42 to lie in bed and crawl and scream and yell until I bring them their food. Who wants complete self-centred childness? No? Okay, that stays. All right. Here's the, you hear my problem here, don't you? We, we can look at this and we go, oh, it's too big for anybody. The problem is I can't find any of this stuff that I want to take out for my wife. <laughs> That's the problem. The problem is we look at it and we go, oh, a little, a little bit idealistic, you know, a little bit up there. And yet when we closely look at it, love always hopes. You know you want a person who's full of hope? Perseveres. Don't you want a person, I mean, all that stuff, my hunch is there's nothing that you would take off that list for the person that you were looking for to spend your life with, for the person you are hoping you're spending your life with, the, the husband or the wife or the, uh, the person of your dreams. I don't think there's anything there that you would actually take off the list. And Paul finishes this passage with this, oh, it's profound what he does here. Because he's going through this almost didactic list. You know, love is patient and kind. Yeah, patient, yeah, get kind, yeah. Not so much, you know, selfless, yeah, I guess so. But, but then, he, then he finishes with this. He almost leans into our emotions where he says this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. And nobody criticised him because that's how kids talk. I thought like a child and nobody criticised him because that's how kids think. Kids are kids. Right? One of, my, one of my granddaughters wanted to marry my wife. Well, we didn't criticize her. Right? She's five. She doesn't understand. She's a child. I reason like a child. Children don't get it. Sure, you give a child five bucks and they think they've got the world and that's theirs, you know? And you don't 
you know, you know, belittle them because they're a child, right? Huh. It says, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. This is Paul's um, gentle way of telling you and me to grow up. Because the myth that says, you'll one day meet Mr. Wright and he'll come in on his white stallion and he'll whisk you off into his castle and the two of you will live happily is a child's story. Isn't it? <laughs> and how many 40-year-olds you know are looking for that child's story? I thought he was the man of my dreams, but I was wrong. But he's out there. I thought she was the woman of my dreams, but I was wrong. But she's out there. One day I'm going to find somebody, and when I find that person, I won't have to worry about all this work. All this work of patience, because I'm not a patient person. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a kind person by nature. I'm not a selfless person. It's too hard. And yet, Scott Peck, in his book, The Road Less Travelled, defines love as, as work. He says not all work is love. Obviously, you can work that's not love, but he says you cannot love without work. He says all love is work. There is no exception. Interesting observation from Scott M. Peck there in his book, The Road Less Traveled, I suggest. It, but we cannot separate. We cannot separate the command of Christ from the example and the, and the person of Christ. Jesus said, if it was somebody else, you know, if it was me who said, you know, love other people like this, patient, kind, da 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 you know, something it would drive you all crazy. Because you'd look at it and, you'd, you know, I could convince you it was right and convince you, well, is there anything here you don't want in a partner? Well, no, there's not. So if you're looking for that in a partner, what, don't you think the person you're looking for is looking for that as well? If that's what they are, don't you think they want that in the person that they live with? So therefore, what excuse have you got for not being that? And the answer is you have none. And so I could convince you that this was right, but if I was telling you to do it, it would drive you crazy. Because... What example do you have? You, you cannot take the command to love others as I have loved you away from the person who said it. See, Jesus didn't say pray to me. He didn't say promise to me. He didn't say negotiate with me. He said follow me. And if you want to know where we're going, this is where we're going. This is the objective. This is the hill that we're going to take. Now, is it going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. I didn't promise you an easy ride. I promised you a meaningful ride. But we couldn't do it if we weren't following him. We couldn't do it if we took our eyes off him because it's his example. It's what he did for us. Is where you find the power to live the life that Jesus is exemplified. You see, he said to these disciples as they're sitting around that room that day, a new commandment I give to you, and they're thinking, okay, what's this, number 11? Or was it number 13? Because you gave us those other two, didn't you? Love God and love people. So it was a bit confusing here. 
He said, no, forget him. This, this, is, this is it. I'm about to go. I want you to love other people as I have loved you. And then he showed them what that looked like, didn't he? He went to the cross and he died for their sin. And here's, here's the thing. If, if, if you don't see what he's done for you, that list is nothing more than a pain in the neck. You'll never do it. It's not normal for you. It's not normal for me. This is not natural. Something in our heart longs for it. Something in the heart of every human being in this room longs for that in somebody else. But it's not natural for anybody. Neither is it natural for me. But it was exemplified. It was shown in Jesus Christ. And if you keep your eyes on him, and if you understand what he's done for you, it melts your heart and empowers you to live like that. It brings it down. You see, if, if I was to get home after being away for a while and find out that my, my neighbour comes over and he says to me, oh, you know, here's this parcel. These people came to the door and they were, ch- they were after money and I fixed it up for you. I would want to know how much he paid. I would want to know how much he fixed up for me for me to know how grateful I should be, right? If, if for example... You know, it was a parcel and there was a dollar missing or, or, you know, it was short on the postage, two bucks, and he paid the two bucks and got the parcel for me, right? I'd shake him by the hand. I'd say, thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Look, I'll give you the two bucks. He's like, ah, don't worry about it, mate. It's all good. No, 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 don't take the two dollars. No, I insist. And he'd probably say, no, don't worry about it. He'd wander off. And I would say, what a good bloke is he? What a great neighbour. You know, I, I ordered this thing. I didn't pay the right postage. They turned up and they wouldn't drop it off without the postage being made up. It was $2.50. He paid the two fifty, and he didn't even worry. Man, I live next to a great guy. Wouldn't you think the same? But if I'd found out that it was the bank <laughs> and the bank were knocking on my door because I hadn't paid my mortgage for the last three months and I found out that he just paid my house off, the hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay my house off, how many know I'm not thinking now, oh, my neighbour's a good bloke. <laughs> right now I'm on the ground kissing his feet. <laughs> Aren't I? If he just paid the hundreds of thousands of dollars of my... If the bank came to my door because I hadn't been able to afford my mortgage for the last three or four months and my neighbour stepped in and said, how much does he owe on the house? And they said $380,000. And he said, here's a cheque for the three hundred eighty k. Don't worry about it anymore. Let him go. How many know I'm not just living next door to a good bloke anymore? Right now I'm living next door to a a saviour? Right now the guy next door is just not a nice guy. The guy next door is somebody who I hold up here. And I go, oh, wow, Charlie, I worship you, whatever, right? Like I'm thinking, this guy's amazing. Because I knew the price that he paid. You cannot follow Jesus if you take your eyes off him because you forget the price that he paid. When you know what he did for you, that's what empowers you to do this. 
When you understand the price that he paid for you, the value that he placed on you, when he said to us, this is how I want you to love others. Here are the commandments of love, you know, patience and kind and long-suffering and gentleness and whatever and so forth. And, And you go through that list and you think to yourself, what a wonderful list, but that's too high for me. If he left it at that and walked out on that, you go, oh, well, too much for me. That's what I want in someone else, by the way, but it's too much for me. It's what I expect in her. It's what I expect from him, but it's too much for me. It is too much for you. In fact, it's too much for any of us. None of us can live the life of love if we take our eyes off the personification of love. But when you have your eyes on Jesus and when you see what Jesus has done for us, when you know what he did for you, when you know the depth of the price as he was on that cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you understand that it was you that separated God from his son, the the, the, the two that had been interwoven since the beginning of existence, if you know what I'm saying, back for the eons of time, before time, and the only thing that ripped them apart was was yours and my sin. And yet he willingly did that. He paid that debt. He paid that price for you. When you know what it was that redeems you and that sticks in your mind, you are free to love as he loved us. If it was just a list, it'd kill. But it wasn't a list. It was a person. Because it's a person, it gives life. It empowers. It allows us to do the very thing that indeed it directs us to do. To love others. Not as culture defines love. To love others, not as you define love. To love others, not as your heart defines love. Jesus didn't say follow your heart. He said follow me. Follow your heart, you'll be lost. The world today says, follow your heart. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. This is the example. This is the way. And you'll be able to live the life that love requires. Because that's the very thing, is it not, that your heart longs for in the example of others. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray. Father. I thank you today for the incredible example that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, when I think for a moment, I remind myself of the cost, the price that was paid, the sacrifice that was made for me, the separation, the agony, the pain (laughs) for me. It melts my heart and empowers my spirit. Lord, keep us focused, I pray today, on the one who has called us to follow after him. In Jesus' name, that we might become the fine people that Paul has directed us to be. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast.